Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In our new series, Modern Parables, we're going to be taking Jesus' parables and transposing them into a modern setting. Each week, we will read a parable or narrative from Jesus' life in the Gospels, and then I will tell you a story. These stories will be fiction, just like those that Jesus told. The goal is for you to listen to the story and then draw meaning out of the story in the same way that Jesus expected his audience to draw meaning out of his parables. I hope you enjoy. Before we go to the Lord in prayer, when, during our scripture reading today, when we get to verse 38, it says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. As you follow along on the screens, I invite you to say that with me because it is supposed to be the crowd rejoicing and saying this together. So wave your palm branches and say those lines with me. Again, that's verse 38, and it begins, Blessed is the king. Our scripture passage today comes from Luke 19, verses 28 through 48. Let us listen for the word of God. After he had said this, he went on ahead, going to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethpage in Bethany, at a place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. And so those who were sent departed and found it, as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. And as he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to praise God joyfully with loud voices for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, who had only recognized on this day the things that were to make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the day, days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize them the time of your visitation from God. Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And he said, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him. But they did not find any that they could do, for all the people were spellbound by what they heard. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Very well done. So as you all know, this is Holy Week. And 
I just want to highlight a few things for you before we get started on today's sermon, which is that we have services Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Easter, obviously, but today's sermon, Friday and Sunday are all part of the Modern Parable Sermon Series, and particularly Good Friday and Easter, those are actually part of the same story, that you'll receive the first half of the story on Good Friday, the second half is on Easter Sunday. Now, they are contained stories, so you could hear one and not necessarily hear the other, but the fact is, is that if you like the holistic story, I suggest that you come out to Good Friday so that you could hear it. We do have a good service design for Good Friday, and uh, I think it's going to be a wonderful time. So please, take the opportunity to come out. It's, it's, a, it's a really nice service, a good way to get into the weekend and to prepare for Easter. Our Modern Parable Sermon Series, though, we are doing that today. And for Modern Parables, of course, each week we would come together, and I'm telling you a story. These stories are very much like the ones that Jesus told when he would tell a parable, meaning that they're fictional. Although I'm basing my story in real people, real events, that I have reconfigured slightly to fit the narrative that we're reading from Luke's gospel when we look at Jesus's life through that narrative. And so each week we read the narrative, I tell you a story, and I give you no real explanation as to what I want you to take away. I simply tell you the story, and hopefully by comparing my story with the narrative, you will come to a deeper understanding of what it is that this narrative is about. Our story today, it begins in December of 2015, three months ago, and it takes place on an airplane that is flying to Nairobi, Kenya. On this plane is a woman named Muna Osmond. Muna is a recent graduate of Cambridge University in international law, and she had been hired by the UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, and she was being sent to Kenya, to Nairobi, because part of her job is that she negotiates with governments on behalf of refugees. She is their advocate. And so she goes into these governments and tries to get them to give more resources over to refugees so that they can get back on their feet and reintegrate into society. Now, what is the most pressing refugee situation right now in the world that you all know of? Syria. That's the one that everybody is aware of. And of course, because it's been so much in the news and we've seen it happening, it's very much on everyone's mind. But that is not the only refugee crisis going on in the world right now. There are several crises. And in fact, it is probably not the worst of all the crises going on in the world. The worst one that is happening right now is in Kenya. And to help you understand what is happening in this particular situation, I need to take you back to 1991. So in 1991, Somalia descended into a bloody civil war. Now you can see, based on the map right there, that Somalia is to the north of Kenya. And so as Somalia descended into a civil war, 90,000 people from Somalia fled south into Kenya towards the city of Dadaab. Now, the city of Dadaab is just like any other city that you would see, except on the outskirts of that city, as you can see from the topography on the map, that it's mostly desert. And so these 90,000 people, they were set up in a refugee camp on the outskirts of Dadaab city. And 
the Kenyan government in 1991, they were more than happy to help out because they knew that these people were in really dire straits and they wanted to get them through this time. And they figured they would be there until the fighting died down and then they could go home. But unfortunately, every time the violence seemed to cease for a little bit, it would flare back up. And so these refugees, they were left in this kind of limbo situation because the Kenyan government was very specific. They said, we are not going to be providing you with citizenship to our country. You cannot become a citizen of Kenya. And of course, they don't want to return home to Somalia because you go home to Somalia, what's going to happen? You're going to get shot and killed in the middle of all the violence. So their only option was to stay. Now, Muna Osmond and her family... They came from Somalia in 1992 to Dadaab. They went there when she was four years old. And the most important thing she remembered about coming to this area is that it was in the middle of nowhere. It was just miles and miles and miles of endless desert. Upon arriving, the UN registered them as refugees and then handed them a tent now, this tent is designed to last about six months to a year. So after that period of time, the tent starts to deteriorate. It falls apart due to the elements, and it can no longer hold up in the midst of all of the weather that it's dealing with. It becomes torn and tattered. And so many of the residents of the Dadaab refugee camp, what they decided to do was they abandoned their camp or their tent in, term, in favor of a more permanent structure. Now, the most common plant out in the Dadaab Desert is the acacia plant. In the acacia plant, it has these long branches with thorns on the plant. And so Muna and her family, they went out and they gathered all of the sticks they could from these acacia plants, and then they put them together and they packed them in with mud to create walls. And then, with whatever was left of their tent, they put it over top of it to prevent any type of weather from getting in. Now, Muna's family is not unique in this regard. Almost everybody who lives in the Dadaab camp has to do this at some point. They have to create a permanent structure. So they're creating these little shanties throughout the desert. And if you could see it for yourself, it would look like there was a slum in the middle of the desert. And so this slum, it became known because of the fact that they built it with these thorny branches as the city of thorns. That is what it is known as out there in the desert, the city of thorns. Now, Muna and her family, just like everybody who was there, they were hoping they would be there maybe one to two years, and then they'd be able to leave. But the Violence in Somalia was so great and so long, so protracted, that one year turned into five years, which turned into ten years. And by 2001, the violence had died down somewhat in Somalia, and so a new provisional government was in place. But this provisional government did not want to repatriate, bring all of these refugees who were down in Kenya back to Somalia for fear that they might cause violence. And so what they said was, we will deal with each of these on a case-by-case -case basis. What that meant was is that Muna and her family were going to be stuck inside of this refugee camp indefinitely. And this was tough because the conditions in the camp had deteriorated dramatically over the last 10 years. 
So, in 2001, the population of the Dadaab camp had grown to more than 130,000 people. And one thing that Muna remembered about living in that camp was that it smelled horrible all the time. The smell was just really hard to get rid of. It was a putrid smell. And part of the problem is, is that in the Dadaab Desert, the temperature is an average about 105 degrees. So sometimes it can get warmer than that. Sometimes it's a little bit cooler. But when you have 130,000 people living in tents and shanties in the middle of the desert with no running water and no real way to bathe, you can imagine that it's not going to smell very good. On top of all of this, these people, they don't have any plumbing out there in the desert. So their toilet is a hole in the ground, which is sustainable during the dry season. But during the wet season, this lack of sanitation, it becomes a real problem. Because when it rains, anything that's buried underground floats to the surface. And this entire area becomes like a huge marshland. To give you a sense of what kind of marshland I'm talking about, Muna described how one day she was walking when she was a child, and a man stepped into a puddle, and he got sunk down all the way up to his shoulders. That's how deep the puddle was. It is a real marsh all the way out there. Now, Muna and her family, when they get out into the streets, there's all this sewage everywhere, right? Because so just imagine, with all this stuff kind of rising to the surface, well, you just have raw sewage everywhere. And so what that means is, is that people get sick very, very easily. And so when one person gets sick, because everybody lives on top of each other and they're in such close proximity to one another, the disease spreads rapidly throughout the camp. Muna herself, she once got tuberculosis when she was six. And thankfully, the UN doctors were there to, able to help her out, to give her the necessary antibiotics so she could recover. Muna's family, just like every other refugee in the camp, is totally and completely dependent upon the UN for everything that they have. Because the Kenyan government has been very specific that these people are not supposed to work. They do not want them to have any kind of job so that they can make a living. So every little bit of food that they get, that food comes from the UN. And the UN provides this for, through the World Food Program. Have you heard of this before? Okay, the World Food Program, that is where they get their food. So every day, Muna and her father, they would go out to get their supplies for their family. Muna, she would carry one of these yellow jerry cans with her. And this jerry can, she would go to these little spigots that are all throughout the camp, and she would fill this as much as she could. Of course, this water is totally laden with bacteria, but this is all the water they have for their day. And you have to realize that there aren't that many of these spigots around the camp. And so, mostly it's young girls who have to go and get the water for these jerry cans. And so there's often skirmishes and fights because, of course, the water doesn't come out that quickly and everybody wants to get their water and go. And so it can be very dangerous going to just get the little bit of water that you need to survive for the day. Her father, while she was out grabbing that, would go to these massive warehouses that were run by the UN World Food Program. And that is where they would get their rations for the day. Now, 
Each day, a family would get a couple cups of rice, sargum or maize, those are the the possibilities that you could have, a little bit of salt, and a little half cup of oil. If you were to do the calorie count on that for a family of four, you're looking at about 1,000 calories for the day. You break that down, that's about 250 calories per person. By contrast, here in the United States, usually a single individual will eat up to 10 times that amount of calories in a single day. A single American will usually eat around 2,500 calories in a day. So you need to realize that these people are quite hungry most of the time. On top of this, because you have 130,000 people who need to be fed every single day by these big warehouses, clearly the UN cannot staff the number of people who are necessary to hand out all of this food. And so they depend on refugees in the camp who they pay a stipend to. And these refugees will often weigh down the scales so that they can take a little bit off the top of every person they give to. Now they hold on to this food, so of course they can eat a little bit more, but also so that they can sell the food. You see, food is the currency in the city of Thorns. With food, because it is such a scarce resource, you can actually create a better life for yourself. Let me explain to you how this works. So let's say you want to start a business. Now remember, the Kenyan government said they don't want them to work, but people are people. When you have 130,000 people living together, there's some people who are going to want to make a better life for themselves. So let's say you would like to create a taxi service. Well, this is not a taxi service like in the U.S. where you're going to get a car and right, you're going to go around and like have a little meter. Basically what that means is, is that you need to buy a motorbike. And that motorbike is going to help you get people around and ferry them around this little city. Clearly, you probably cannot afford this bike. So what you can do is, every other day, you can sell your rations and save a little bit of money. And over a period of months and years, you can save up enough to eventually purchase this motorbike to go out and to run your taxi service. And so in the city of Thorns, Food is the way that you can make a better life for yourself. Anybody can do it if they want to. The price you have to be willing to pay is hunger. And so with hunger, you have to realize, though, it's not like us where we forego a meal during the day. They don't have much to begin with. So it is quite a sacrifice. Now, Muna's father, he wanted her to have a better life, wanted her to live outside of this camp. He wanted her to get out and go, but of course they're stuck there. And he was trying to figure out a way that he could do this, and then it finally came to him. In 2003, the Canadian government came forward and said that they would be willing to sponsor the top 10 boys and the top 10 girls in the secondary schools in the Dadaab camp in the city of Thorns. So yes, they do have secondary schools. They have schools. They have hospitals. They have social services. They even have banks inside of this refugee camp. So if she could score, if she could be one of the top 10 girls in her class on the scholarship examination, then she would become a full Canadian citizen and she would be allowed to go to whatever school she got into in Canada for free. She could go there on a full ride. And so Muna's father, he figured this was it. This is the way he was going to do it. She was smart. She was capable. She just needed the calories to be able to study and remember the information. And so he and his wife, they 
went through and decided that they were going to go hungry so that they could give the food to her so she could study and get out. And in 2005, at the age of 17, she did it. She got third on the examination for her class, and she was able to become a Canadian citizen. She applied to the University of Toronto and decided that she wanted to major in international studies. When she got in, her parents were so happy that they gave over a week's worth of rations so that they could have a little cake in order to celebrate from a baker in the city. The day that she left and went from the camp to the airport to leave for Toronto, she cried all the way there because she knew that she would never be able to see her family again in person. She'd be able to talk to them, perhaps, but never see them again. So she got on the plane, she flew to Toronto, and it was like she stepped off the airplane into an entirely new dimension. She had a lot of things she had to get used to. For instance, sleeping on a mattress. She had never done that before. Everybody in the Dadaab camp, everybody in the City of Thorns, they sleep on the ground. They don't have mattresses. And so she wasn't used to this whole idea that you sleep on a mattress. In fact, she thought pillows were completely useless. Like, what's the point of that? Like, propping your head up. So she gets in there, and for the first couple of nights, she can't even sleep. She's just staring at the ceiling. But you know, a big thing that was hard for her was the fact that the temperature-controlled environment, she's inside of these buildings all the time. And remember, when she was there, she's in 105-degree temperature. Her skin is used to really harsh elements. And now she's inside, and the air feels artificial. She was scratching herself all the time because she wasn't used to that kind of air. And so she was really uncomfortable most of the time. She also had to get used to understanding how computers work. She'd never done that before, and she was expected to turn all of her papers in, being typed. She didn't have any of that. She was a very slow typer as well. She just never used any of that. And so she had a steep learning curve. But eventually, she got it. She figured it out. And of course, you know many people who go to school these days in America, and they kind of just wander, and they don't have much motivation. That was not a problem for her. She had a lot of motivation. She worked very hard. She graduated with honors, and then she applied to Cambridge University in England. She got in. She got a full ride with a living stipend, which is exceedingly rare for somebody who's from an international community. She goes over there, and she's studying international law, and in the middle of all of this, she meets the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Antonio Guterres, excuse me, and when she meets this guy, he's at a conference, and they're introduced to each other, and basically the dean says, this is our star student right here, Muna. I want you to meet her. And he gives her his card and says, when you graduate, I want you to give me a call. I got a job waiting for you. So she comes out, she gives him a call, and she moves to Geneva, Switzerland, which is where the European UN headquarters is located. And when she gets there, she is given a debriefing on all the refugee situations that are going on in the world, all the crises, including the City of Thorns. In the eight years since she has been away from the City of Thorns, things have become immeasurably worse. Due to many conflicts in the Middle East and in Africa, the size of the camp has now ballooned to more than 300,000 people. And on top of this, the United States has cut its funding to the World Food Program, which, remember, is how these people eat. 
Now, the reason why the United States cut its funding is because many of the people in Congress felt that the UN World Food Program was mismanaging its donations. Here's what happened. In Somalia, there was, of course, another civil war that broke out. And the UN went in there to try to help out. Their goal was, of course, to give food to the population. But when they got in and they started handing the food out, some of it got siphoned off to Al-Shabaab, which is a terrorist organization affiliated with Al-Qaeda. And, of course, the United States cannot be seen as funding any kind of terrorism, particularly through food donations. And so they punished the UN for not having better oversight by reducing their contributions. Now, these reductions had a huge consequence on the people in the city of Thorns because with double the population and half the amount of rations, you could imagine that this is bordering on a crime against humanity. Now, Muna, she figured that when she got there that she would be sent directly to negotiate with the Kenyan government about the city of Thorns. But they said, no, the Syrian crisis, it was starting to become a real issue. They said, we need your skills here in Europe. We need to start negotiating with these governments. But then in 2015, everything changed. In Somalia, while the civil war was going on, massive drought came through, causing an enormous famine. And so this refugee trickle, which was going down from Somalia into Kenya, became a torrent. And 200,000 more people were added to the camp. 500,000 people are in this camp right now, in a camp that was built for 90,000 people. To add to that, the United States once again cut its funding to the World Food Program. And the reason why is because as those people trickled down, right, from Somalia into Kenya, some of those people, those 200,000, were affiliated with Al-Shabaab, and they were concerned that terrorist cells were forming inside of the camp. And again, the United States cannot be seen as funding terrorist organizations. To make matters even worse, the Kenyan government had become extraordinarily xenophobic about having all of these Somalis in the Dadaab camp. And so they started cutting off their water supply on top of everything else. And they started sending in, in the midst of this police officers who went into the camp to find terrorists, which essentially meant that they were going in and they were terrorizing this population. They would find people and then they would beat them. And so they were essentially being forced into a situation which was going to be a horrific humanitarian crisis. And so Antonio, he had tried to negotiate with the Kenyan government. They were not having any of it. And so he thought, I'll send Muna. She lived there. Maybe she can talk some sense into them. And so this is when she was on the plane headed to Nairobi, which is where our story began today. While she was in the air, she received word that a cholera outbreak had occurred inside of the camp. Cholera, in case you don't know, is a bacterial infection of the small intestine that causes horrible diarrhea and can cause such severe dehydration and electrolyte imbalances that you can die from it. So she gets on the ground, and she figured out from the moment that she stepped off that plane that her presence there was not going to do very much good. The cabinet member who was supposed to meet with her postponed their meeting to the next day. Then he goes in, she goes in the next day, he postpones it again. A week later, they finally sit down together, and he tells her in no uncertain terms that they have every intention of trying to shut the camp down. 
And when she pleads with him and says, where are these people going to go? They can't go back home. They're in the middle of a conflict. They're going to get killed if you allow them to leave. He says, not my problem, and they're not going to be here. So basically, these people are lost. So she leaves, she goes out, she gets on the phone, she calls Antonio up and she says, look, you need to be aware of the impending humanitarian crisis that's about to come on the horizon. And then he tells her, I need you back in Geneva, we need to start dealing with the Syrian crisis, it's it's becoming much worse. And as she's about to board the plane to head back, she decides, you know what, no, I'm going to go see Dadaab. And so she hires a car and she gets in the car and she drives from Nairobi all the way out to Dadaab, which is an eight-hour drive. And she gets all the way out there. And remember, it's been 10 years since she has been to the city of Thorns. And she steps out of the car on the outskirts of Dadaab, and she sees the city of Thorns. And it's, of course, all fenced off with this big chain-link fence with all this barbed wire and razor wire around it. And as she looks through, she can see that the situation has become so much worse since she was last there. So much worse. The people are walking around. They look like they are Holocaust survivors. They barely have any type of meat on them at all. They they look gaunt. Their eyes are sunken in. And she sees off in the background, she can see that there's a funeral procession going by. This funeral procession, they're carrying these bodies of these people who have died from cholera, clearly, and they're going to bury them. And as she's watching this funeral procession go by, she doesn't see this little girl who comes up to the fence where she is. And she ends up looking down at this little girl through the fence, and the girl, she doesn't even speak to her. She just looks up at her with eyes, saying, is there anything that you can do for me? And so she takes her fingers and she puts them through the fence, touches the girl on the cheek, and she begins to weep. She knows that there's nothing that she can do until the international community comes together and says, enough is enough and we will allow this suffering no more. And so I do not end my sermon this morning with an amen, as I usually do. I end this sermon by asking you to get involved. I would like you to donate today to the UNHCR, to the World Food Program. I'd like you to take some time out of your day to go on their website and contribute just a little bit of money to them. I tried to lay out for you everything about the situation. I wanted to be honest with you. I wanted you to know that there are some issues with what's going on in there. But I also want you to consider something. What if you were one of those people in the camp? What if you have been stuck in that camp since the early 90s? Wouldn't you want somebody to help you? Wouldn't you want somebody to notice that you were there? Wouldn't you just hope that somebody cared enough 
in some other part of the world to say, yes, I see you. Yes, I know you're suffering. And yes, I'm willing to help you. Wouldn't that be something that you would want? I know it's something that I would want. And so I hope today that you might be willing to do that. I know that we're giving to One Great Hour of Sharing, which is a wonderful program. It helps people all around the world. But this is a big deal. This is a humanitarian crisis, the likes of which we can do something about. And that's the beautiful thing about this, is that we can help if we're willing to give just a little bit. And so in the same way that Jesus sat there and looked at Jerusalem and shed tears, I hope that you will shed tears over the city of thorns, because this is not something that we should allow to continue. And as Christians, we need to stand up and say, enough is enough, and we will allow this suffering no more. And to that, I will say, amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.